it's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, August 8th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jim. August may be National Immunization Month, but according to the California report, almost one-third of California residents say they'll pass on another COVID shot. Meanwhile, public health officials caution that receiving additional vaccinations may be imperative. Then, after a look at local news and weather, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza speaks with Nevada County OES Senior Analyst Alex Keepel-Toll about Phase 2 of a project called the Woodpecker Ravine Shaded Fuel Break. Then, we close with a commentary by Mark Cuniberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A study out this week from UCLA Center for Health Policy Research reports that 32% of adult Californians say they would decline any additional COVID vaccine boosters. Why? Well, reasons range from people who think additional COVID vaccinations are unnecessary to those who worry about side effects. There are also people who are just anti-vax. Public health officials caution that COVID still remains a big threat and getting additional vaccinations is prudent. The far western portion of the U.S.-Mexico border wall that juts out into the Pacific Ocean south of San Diego is now being demolished. It will be replaced by a newer barrier, 18 feet tall in some places and 30 feet tall in others. U.S. border officials say that once the work is done, there will still be public access to Friendship Park in the area. It's long been a place where friends and family on each side of the border have gathered to talk to each other through the barricade. California is, of course, one of the most diverse states in the nation, but a new Berkeley IGS survey finds that those who vote regularly don't reflect the state's wider population. Here's KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer. Regular voters, those who cast ballots in at least five of the last seven state elections, are more likely to be white, married, college grads, and homeowners, and quite a bit older than California's adult population overall. The most common reason Latino, Asian, and Black voters give for not voting is a lack of information, says pollster Mark DiCamillo. They don't know enough about the issues. They don't feel qualified, I guess, enough to vote on these issues or candidates because they don't feel well enough informed. Jonathan Metastein, executive director of California Common Cause, helped design the survey. He says eligible voters who are less likely to cast ballots often have less access to online voter information. And he said campaigns spend most of their voter education dollars on people who are most likely to vote. And they're going to spend no money outreaching to the folks who are on the margins of our democracy or who are excluded from our democracy. There are households that live in political deserts. They get no campaign mail. They get no campaign phone calls. They get no campaign text messages. While that might sound like a relief given all the annoying campaign mail that piles up, it also reduces incentives to cast a ballot. Meta Stein says we've reached the limit of what making it easier to register and to vote by mail can do to increase voter turnout. And so we want a democracy that we can be proud of, a democracy that we feel is truly inclusive, representative, and participatory, there's huge amounts of work that have yet to be done. The poll also found that two-thirds of voters say government has an obligation to increase nonpartisan outreach to encourage underrepresented voters to participate in elections. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and Adult and Children's Health Systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org. 
The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. All right, let's turn to sports and cross the border. In Tijuana, a team of young baseball players is getting ready to represent Mexico in the Little League World Series. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis caught up with the team on the practice field. Viene el lanzamiento hacia el plato, sale el contacto profundo hacia el jardín de la izquierda, la pelota con distancia, con altura. That's the sound of Mexican baseball announcers losing their minds over the Grand Slam that sent Tijuana to the Little League World Series. The way that they won the championship, I don't have the words to explain how I feel, especially because it was my son who hit the Grand Slam, so I don't have the words yet. That's Alberto Mejilla, president of Tijuana Little League and proud father of Marco, who hit the home run. Marco says he wasn't even sure that he hit the ball hard enough for a home run. He thought it would just bounce off the wall. But the ball cleared the fences, and now Tijuana is going to the biggest youth baseball tournament on the planet. Marco says it's amazing to be Mexico's team, to have an entire country supporting you. The team will leave August 10th for Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where the tournament is held every year. 12-year-old Jorge Lizarraga can throw a fastball 73 miles per hour. He says this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Whatever happens in Williamsport, Tijuana's All-Stars have already become local celebrities. They've done rounds of interviews with local media, been invited to public events, even signed autographs for little kids. Max Leiva's favorite part has been the free swag. Players got new chains and jerseys. Pues nos han regalado esta cadena, también nos regalaron pues estas camisas, la gorra. They even got hats with their names and numbers embroidered on the back. Despite the distractions, Mejia says the team is focused and playing to win. We know we have a great team. We're not going on vacation. We want to try to win. We want to try to be uh, on the championship game. The road to the championship won't be easy. Their first game will be on August 17th against the winner of a game between Cuba and Japan. Leiva says they're both very strong opponents. Sí, son equipos demasiado fuertes. But he's confident that the effort they're putting into practice is going to pay off. And they aren't the only ones training. The moms came up with new chants, one for Team Mexico instead of just Team Tijuana. For the California Report, 
I'm Gustavo Solis in Tijuana. And finally, get your clam on. Up in Humboldt County, the Department of Fish and Wildlife has reopened the recreational razor clam fishery. It had been closed because of demoic acid levels in the clams. What's that? It's a natural toxin produced by plankton and shellfish. But those levels have been reduced to safe levels, according to the state. The daily bag limit, by the way, for harvested clams is 20. And that's the California Report for today, Tuesday, August 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening, and let's talk tomorrow. In regional news, the union reports that Congressman Adam Schiff, a Democrat of San Gabriel Valley and a California senatorial candidate, will speak at an evening reception in Grass Valley tonight at the Center for the Arts, sponsored by the Nevada County Democrats. As I speak, tickets are currently sold out, and the event began at 6 o'clock. Right now, Schiff is the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, which he chaired from 2019 to 2023. He previously served on the House Appropriations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School. For the first part of the evening, Congressman Schiff will provide insight and perspectives about his time in the U.S. Congress, including the changes he's seen during the last 10 years. In addition to that, he'll share his goals and aspirations surrounding the idea of becoming the next senator of California. The second part of the evening will be a social mixer, where Schiff will meet with a smaller group of local residents to learn about what local, state, and national issues are most important to Nevada County residents specifically. That said, our community's response to Mr. Schiff's arrival hasn't been all positive, as evidenced by the peaceful protest organized by the founders of Back the Blue Nevada County, Bethany Denkers and Brian Jones. A union column posted by the two of them made clear that, quote, no violence or vandalism will be tolerated under any circumstances and encouraged potential participants to, quote, please remember that we are gathering peacefully to convey a message to and about Adam Schiff and his corrupt behaviors, nothing more. We will rise above antagonistic comments or threats from those who support him by maintaining our composure and responding with kindness or not at all. That's scheduled to take place at the time of Schiff's event. According to Ubinet, the city of Grass Valley has announced the appointment of Kevin Kartstaffner to the position of Emergency Medical Services Administrative Captain, effective July 1, 2023. The addition of this position is in alignment with the Measure E goal of Enhanced Emergency Medical Response for the Grass Valley Fire Department. Cart Staffner brings 22 years of experience in the fire service to his new role. Throughout his career with both Grass Valley and Nevada City, he's exhibited dedication and expertise in the field of emergency medical services and fire operations. In his new role, he'll ensure the seamless coordination and delivery of vital emergency medical services to the residents of Grass Valley and Nevada City. His comprehensive understanding of LALS, ALS, and EMS training will help him to implement best practices and optimize response times. In addition to his assigned duties, Cart Staffner is tasked with providing immediate response to scene for all EMS incidents necessitating critical care. The city of Grass Valley states that it is dedicated to maintaining the highest standard of emergency medical services and that the development of Cart Staffner's appointment marks a step forward in achieving that goal. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly clear with a low around 57. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 84. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 57. 
For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear with a low around 45. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 76. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 42. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 59. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 89. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 59. Currently, there are no red flag warnings or fire weather watches. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. CAL FIRE recently awarded the County of Nevada Office of Emergency Services $3.9 million to implement Phase 2 of the Woodpecker Ravine Shaded Fuel Break. This afternoon, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza reached out to Nevada County OES Senior Analyst Alex Keeble-Toll for the details. Alex, I wanted to talk to you about this award, but first, tell me about the Woodpecker Ravine Shaded Fuel Break. So Woodpecker Ravine has showed up as a priority in the Nevada Yuba Plaster NAU Unit Strategic Plan, so that's CAL FIRE, specifically Battalion 12, for the past several years. Um, And basically, this area is a place where you have incredibly challenging topography. It's very, very steep. There's really, really dense fuels. And it essentially is in a highly populated area. So it's basically this teardrop shape that goes down from Empire Mine. It's bounded at the bottom by Mount Olive Road. And then it's got Highway 174 on one side and Labar Meadows on the other. Okay. Um, It's in the name but I'll have to confess that I don't actually know what a shaded fuel break is. Tell me what that is. Yeah, so that's a really good question because it's really important for the community to understand that when we're talking about a shaded fuel break, this is in contrast to a fire break where we're taking away everything down to bare mineral soil. A shaded fuel break is really creating a zone that can be used strategically for protection. So we're removing ladder fuel, we're removing dense understory, we're removing really small diameter trees. And the goal is twofold. We're hoping that it will create safer conditions for people to evacuate, so that egress component. At the same time, create conditions that allow first responders to get in quickly and either you know, mitigate the fire or make a stand against the fire, so that ingress component. Nevada County OES applied for funding for this project through a relatively new FEMA program called Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities. I guess it goes by BRIC. Part of the reason that Nevada County was granted the money is because the work done here will serve as a model for other communities, right? Yeah, so the FEMA BRIC project was really designed to be a model for what wildfire resilience can look like for rural forested communities. We're hitting on the individual community and landscape scale of wildfire mitigation. And that's really important because it's not a one-size-fits-all. And, you know, as the Office of Emergency Services, we really want to be sure to be empowering our community members to take the actions that they can, to take responsibility for stewardship of the land under their jurisdiction, but then also recognize that there's a bigger picture and that, you know, there are things that individual landowners can't accomplish on their own. But if we all kind of chip in and do our part and then are able to bring down resources from state and federal agencies, that we really can create this more holistic 
vision and opportunity for resilience. And, you know, we're really hopeful that this project is going to be an absolute success and that it will be a model that we can replicate across Nevada County. And, you know, to be frank, we've already gotten, you know, calls from a number of different counties and other folks elsewhere in California really wanting to know how did we build out this project for holistic wildfire resilience because it's a model people are interested in and they recognize the importance of addressing mitigation at all scales. Let's talk about this award specifically. I want you to help me understand the funding mechanism. The recent award came from CAL FIRE, but some of the money for the shaded fuel break comes from FEMA. Yeah, so overall, this project is a really excellent example of leveraging both federal and state agency funding. So Nevada County OES had put in a request to FEMA's Building Resilient Communities and Infrastructure Program, and that was a $30 million, $31 million ask of FEMA, but that requires a 25% local match, which when you're talking about $31 million is a really big ask. And essentially, through these CAL FIRE grants, we are able to provide that local match with state agency funding. And in whole, it's this incredibly holistic project where we have this shaded fuel break component that's funded by CAL FIRE, but then we also with FEMA are going to have this whole home hardening component, defensible space, education, leveraging the expertise of local nonprofits, Circle and Sierra Streams Institute to create really this holistic vision for what wildfire mitigation can look like in our rural forested community. Okay, let's talk about home hardening. That phrase, home hardening, along with defensible space and other ways to increase the chances that our homes could survive a wildfire event, we hear about that quite a bit now. Explain how that will be part of the Woodpecker Ravine Shaded Fuel Break Project. Yeah, absolutely. So this project will obviously have this big education component. And the idea there is to empower community members to do what they can, leverage the resources they can, you know, understand that as stewards of this land, you can, you know, mitigate the risk through your defensible space. You can mitigate the risk through home hardening activities. And that could be, you know, everything from screening your vents to making sure that you're installing um, wildfire resistant materials for decks to wildfire resistant materials for siting, kind of a whole suite of options. The brick proposal will provide basically a rebate option for homeowners. And then zooming out a little bit, you know, the shaded fuel break components are going to address that ingress and egress. So it'll be 150 feet on either side of primary evacuation route, 75 feet on either side of secondary. So that's really, you know, accomplishing the things that maybe homeowners can't do on their own. But taking in sum, each of these pieces at the individual level for home hardening and defensible space, at the community level through evacuation route improvements, and then at the landscape scale through this much larger shade of fuel break action, we're really kind of hitting all the points to ensure wildfire resilience. So the money has been awarded for phase two. When will work begin? Is it just a continuation of phase one? So actually, phase one, we haven't started on the ground implementation yet because it's really important to note that in order for these funds to count as match against the FEMA funds, we actually have to have the FEMA funds obligated. So we heard last year from the FEMA BRIC program that our proposal had been advanced for environmental and cultural review and that they anticipated obligating those funds this fall. So we've been in a tiny bit of a holding pattern because we really want to leverage the opportunity to use these CAL FIRE funds as match. 
So basically the game plan is now that we've been awarded phase two, we'll be undertaking phase one and phase two together as one contiguous 1,100-acre project. And we're thinking we will put out an RFP to ensure the environmental and cultural compliance at some point this fall. Um, there'll be about a year of planning associated with identifying the individual treatments for the different project areas, getting the buy-in from individual property owners because we recognize that, you know, the work on which the land on which a lot of this work is going to take place, it's, you know, it's people's private property and they have a say. We're not going to come in and tell them they have to do this. We're hopeful people will participate. And then we hope to get on the ground in 2025 for actually making the work happen. And if folks are interested in learning more about the timeline, you can go online to readynevadacounty.org. Um, we've got a projects page up there for Woodpecker Ravine. It's got some maps, some great details about the funding and the different components of the project. And it does have a timeline on there so people can kind of clue in to what the different steps are for making this work happen. I've been talking with Nevada County OES Senior Analyst Alex Keeble-Toll. Alex, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Earnings reports from public companies have, in recent months, demonstrated that the economy may not be in bad shape after all. But this month, we may finally be witnessing a slowdown. Up next, Mark Cunaberti brings us a commentary in which he shares his thoughts about the Fed, the slowdown, and stubborn inflation. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Seems that the market might be running out of gas. As mentioned in previous and recent Money Matters news, seven of the best-known and loved stocks may have had a big part in driving the recent multi-month rally in equities. As covered in my recent newscasts and articles, the data that the Central Bank of the U.S., the Federal Reserve, bases its decisions on are mostly backwards-looking. It is the nature of statistics. Employment and jobs data look at what has already happened, as does consumer prices, consumer savings, and spending habits in just about all the other statistics that flow out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Of course, it would be impossible to tell what will happen, as no one has a crystal ball, but the Fed bases their decisions on where we are going from where we have been. A difficult and some say an impossible task. The poor Fed. No one can tell what will happen, when it will happen, and how long a time frame something will occur, and the Fed is no exception. But the Fed is responsible for wielding its monetary tools to bring down inflation, while hopefully maintaining a stable economy and healthy jobs market. As I suggested a month or so back, because of the backwards-looking data, last quarter's earnings report from public companies illustrated a consumer that was still ringing up the cash registers. Hence, the Fed indicated back then, at that time, of course, it may continue on its crusade of raising interest rates to quell inflation. Now we fast forward to this quarter's most recent earnings reports, and some companies are now reporting slowing demand. Uh-oh. Although calls for a recession rang out loud and clear through many news conduits beginning around a year or so ago, the revisions from many analysts, some, have toned down the alarm that a recession may not be as severe or even occur at all based on the last period's earnings reports. Again, I will reiterate, however, my prognostication that savings from lavish COVID payments to consumers may now just be running out and people are having to go back to work. 
Recently released earnings reports suggest the consumer may be cutting back on their spending and increasing their credit card debt. Hmm, sounds like a slowing economy to me. Although it took a while, it may now be coming apparent that the Fed's tools to squash the economy are working. Couple that with stubborn inflation and we may be finally seeing the slowdown that I projected and that a recession might still be in the cards. We will see if the Federal Reserve or your Money Matters columnist, yours truly, is correct on or about early 2024, which is when I suspect something unmentionable may hit the fan. I'm watching the market so you don't have to. Remember, this newscast expresses my opinion only. It's not meant as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell anything, nor represents the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor, nor this media outlet its staff members or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors, 1979, and California insurance license, OL34249, and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagerradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Kuniberg. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, August 8th. You can head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem, and I hope you have a great night. <laughs>